in three, two, one. And welcome to another Mind Jam podcast. And boy, am I excited about today's episode. We are streaming all the way to the United Kingdom with one of my favorite veterinarians. He's actually part of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, the British Veterinary Association. He is the Senior Vice President of the Raw Feeding Veterinary Society and a very good friend of mine, Dr. Nick Thompson, how the heck are you, my friend? Rodney, it's really lovely to see you. How are you? It's really interesting because you find that a lot of these associations or these veterinary associations with the backing of these ultra-processed food companies are constantly punching out into the press incessant repetition of information pertaining to like this is just the latest one that got published presence of pathogenic bacteria and feces from dogs fed rough meat-based diets or dry kibble and and i mean study after study is coming out you'll always see them jump out and say oh my gosh there's bacteria in this food you have to stay away this is a public concern for the vet technicians the vet nurses uh, the veterinarians that are watching even the the pet parents at home that are watching those that are on the fence of oh, gosh do i really want to try this but what about bacteria there is bacteria in the food, but let's face it, there's bacteria on the feet of your dog when they come back from the park and they lick their feet. They live in a much more bacteria-laden world than we live in. That's the first thing to say. The second thing is to say that it's interesting that there are all these, you know, and at the moment there's one or two every year saying how much bacteria there is in raw food. When these departments within the university, that paper in the vet record 2020 is from Uppsala in Sweden. And why are they just looking at the negative aspects? Why aren't they looking at the positive aspects? Because there are millions of people around the world who have seen the positive aspects. And it's just quite interesting that the academics are ignoring the upside. What they classically say is, there is no evidence of benefit. And I can categorically say there is evidence of benefit. In fact, we've put it all together. The Raw Feeding Veterinary Society has produced a position paper where we have taken 62 academic articles and woven all those together. And it's called Benefit, Bugs, Balance and Bones. For the bugs and the bones, for example, where's the evidence? All these uh, academic institutions give us all this sort of bacteria, E. coli and Salmonella and Giardia and Campylobacter, but there are very, very few papers. I know of maybe two or three papers in the last 60 years demonstrating harm to our dogs, our cats or, or ourselves. They say, oh, it's dangerous, oh, it's dangerous, but it's actually, it's the academics who don't have the evidence to support their position that it's dangerous. It may be dangerous in theory, but then you think crossing the road is dangerous in theory, but where would you be if you couldn't cross the road every day? So what would your advice be to those pet parents around the world that have been pet food bullied and this food prejudice now that you're seeing out of some of these clinics, some of these pet parents are, you know, are walking into these clinics and embarrassingly turned around with their dog because the dog is not allowed in the clinic. Those veterinarians, those clinics that are totally opposed to pet owners looking at another 
food regime for their pet, meaning if it's not ultra processed food, you're not allowed in my clinic. There were a few Canadian vet clinics, and I know that right now we're, you're seeing it in the United States, I believe Tuff themselves have said, hey, if you're feeding your dog fresh food, you are not allowed in this clinic. What What is your take on this? Oh, I think it's appalling. I think it's appalling. They think that a raw fed diet dog is going to be it's salmonella and campylobacter are the two main pathogens that they are worried about okay so therefore you have to ask do these clinics test every dog that comes in through the door for salmonella and campylobacter because regular ultra processed kibble dogs do have a very low level of salmonella and up to 88% of, of regular dogs have campylobacter in their gut. For me, they would have to swab every single dog that comes through the door in order to say, you have not got any pathogens, you can come in, or you have got pathogens, you cannot come in. Drawing the line based on food is totally illogical. What you're describing is food prejudice, not science. It's a bit like teeter testing. In this country, teeter testing can cost as little as $50, but there are some practices who don't really want to do teeter testing who will charge $350 for the same procedure. It's a prejudice. It's like, we don't really want to do it. And therefore, we're going to make your life really difficult. And I think we should call out those practices who are raw prejudiced and celebrate those practices who have a greater foresight. I think let's let the market decide where it should be. We should always also, I think I and my colleagues should engage with our veterinary colleagues to try and hammer out the pros and the cons of raw food, the pros and the cons of kibbled and tinned foods so that we can have a grown-up conversation about it. What you're describing is, is non-science prejudice and it has no place in a grown-up veterinary conversation. Food warrior Susan Thixton, she brought it up that when you look at ultra-processed food and dry food, pound per pound, there has been more recall in studies done on that, on those foods because of bacteria and pathogens than there has on fresh food. But why is it that we are seeing food prejudice. You would never see this in the human medical space. You would never see an individual walk into his doctor and his doctor say, are you vegan? Get out. Are you, uh, you're on a carnivore diet? Get out. Why on earth is this happening in the pet space today where clinics are refusing people based upon food values and food ethics? It's mind-blowing to me, but Susan Thixton brought it up. If you are going to use bacteria as an excuse, then you have to look at the overall recall list here. It is not even close. It is so heavily one-sided in the ultra-processed food realms of for recalls on pathogens and bacteria. So why are... What, why are we allowing dogs on ultra-processed foods into clinics? Yeah, totally. But people would say, well, there's more, more ultra-processed food than there is fresh and raw, therefore there's going to be more recalls. But if you look at it, it's something like 139 to 1 ratio, whereas the raw and fresh is 20% of the market, which is what, a 5 to 1 ratio? It's disproportionately dirty, disproportionately bacteria-laden. And they need to clear up their backyard before they start casting aspersions on what we're doing. But even then, show me the study which says that a 
a raw fed dog in a clinic in a hospital is a greater risk than any other animal in that hospital. If they were really, really worried about pathogens, they wouldn't have any dogs in there at all. You know, right now, the world of the microbiome and research into the microbiome, as you, I'm sure, are well aware, there's a lot of controversy as to how sterile we've made our environment, how sterile our food has become. I was listening to Dr. Mark Hyman in his latest book that's been released that the World Health Organization claimed that there's only 60 harvests left before all the soil is gone. I mean, I was literally floored by that statistic. And now we're seeing regenerative farming, trying to bring the soil back, trying to put the bacteria back in the soil. They claim that all the bacteria is gone from the soil. Therefore, our gut biomes are completely different, are completely shifted. I'm watching documentary after documentary, study after study, talking about how critical the diversity in the belly is pertaining not only to the health, but of course, to longevity, to lifespan, to that ultimate dream of having your dog and you being on this planet for as long as possible. So, Dr. Nick, when we are challenging on one end, saying how dangerous this food is because of the diversity of bacteria, but on the other end, we have science saying how sterile our environment is, how does one like yourself decipher through all that mess? I would begin to answer it obliquely by saying that there are studies where they've looked at the cleanliness of the house versus the health of the children and there is an inverse law there in that your propensity as a child for getting asthma and eczema is inversely proportionate to how many times your mother wipes the kitchen counter. My granny used to say a little peck of dirt is good for you. And I think that that's really, really important because if you live in a sterile environment and then you come across just a normal level of pathogens, you're much, much more susceptible to disease. And dogs have grown up in an environment where they have a healthy relationship with bacteria. They'll eat food from the floor, clean soil, and, and so they'll be ingesting soil bacteria and they will tonify gut health, gut immunity, such that when they do come across a pathogen, they're in a much better space. You know, there's a lot of research that comes out of, out of your side of the world. And I know that Hartbury Uni or University over in the UK had done a study on bowls, on water bowls. And they found that like the most toxic types of bacteria were growing in these different types of water bowls, whether the bowls were uh, ceramic or plastic or stainless steel. But yet there's more press when it comes to a specific amount of bacteria found on raw food. And I found that the bowls got zero press. Like there was no media. These scientists had come out and said, hey, man, there's a bigger problem looming in the house than the food. And it's the water bowl, zero press. This is it. And if you look back to in the literature, the uh, Centers for Disease Control over on your side of the pond, in the days when they looked carefully, they were finding a lot of incidents of salmonella, for example, in, in two, three-year-olds because they would go and play with the kibble and then put their hands in their mouths. There are no studies 
similar to that, and I promise you, they've looked for raw food. It's really ironic. Everybody thinks kibble is completely sterile, and yet it has a history of salmonella and infections in people and dogs, and yet everybody, you know, the academics think that raw food is dirty, and yet there's no studies to back them up. Nobody has quantified the risk from kibble. Nobody has quantified the risk from raw and, and fresh food. Let's quantify this. We've got, we've got ultra-processed tins, we've got ultra-processed kibble, we've got fresh and we've got raw. Now let's line them up and let's do some real science to look at the pros and the cons of all of those ways of feeding. And I think that would be the place for these people to put their millions. One of the problems that we have here, uh, Dr. Nick, is because of the explosion in the sort of fresh food category, I mean, for the first time you're seeing, there was a, a paper that was just, a statistic that was just posted in an article that although kibble is, you know, ultra processed dry food is the majority of sales in North America, it's actually down to 80%. And I mean, that's pretty significant if you think about it. I mean, you know, in the olden days, it was like 100 and then it, it's being chipped away slowly, slowly by these new categories that have come up. In the raw feeding category, in the fresh feeding category, in the refrigerated foods, we're seeing something different here in North America. Now that we're seeing this boom, we're seeing a lot of good companies, but maybe just other companies of investors who see an opportunity. And now we're seeing this surge of these diets coming out to market. And we're seeing a lot of the, the vet schools that are saying, hey, not so fast and testing these foods and finding that these foods are completely deficient in a lot of categories. Are you seeing that same problem over on your end of the pond? As an example here in North America, it's almost $4 a pound to get a well-balanced diet of food, but you have manufacturers coming in at 75 cents a pound and 55 cents a pound saying, hey, my raw food is exactly like your raw food. I wonder how we're going to combat this issue. And is this an issue over on your side of the pond? Okay, it, it is an issue. And I think the way to avoid getting any problems is to feed variety. This is one of my mantras, is, is always feed variety. And if we can just educate and guide and, and help manufacturers to improve their, their standards, we, the Raw Feeding Veterinary Society is just starting a new uh, scheme with manufacturers whereby we're saying, guys, let's get everybody to come to a, a really good bare minimum and then gradually we awesome. will increase that minimum standard for quality of nutrition, quality of preparation in the, in the processing plant, for safety to the end user, to, for education to the end user. So we're trying to promote this as a, as a gold standard, just improve things really. I think Dr. Nick, that is going to appease a lot of those people that are out there right now with some of these fears that have happening because of course anytime there's a surge in something and it becomes popular everybody sort of wants to have an involvement in that right and what's happening here now is you're seeing the veterinary association 
grabbing a lot of these foods, these new brand new raw food startups, their foods off the shelves, these guys can't even come close to meeting the AFCO recommendations. Like not even 50% of those AFCO recommendations, you would logically think that by feeding a fresh food diet that you are well above AFCO standards. And it's really scary to see that some of these companies can't come in, like I said, they can't even crack the threshold of where the AFCO standards are, they are way below that. Yeah, that's totally right. There was a study in 2017 by Davis et al. out of Nottingham University, and they took 160 or so. They just walked down the, down the supermarket aisle and just took every, every food that they could. They did a nutritional, nutritional analysis and see how close did they come to the uh, FEDIAF guideline. FEDIAF is the equivalent of AFCO in, in Europe. And incredibly, with 96% of the tinned foods did not make it to the FEDIAF standards and 65% of the dried ultra-processed and other foods didn't make it. So the academics will, will point to raw food and say that, you know, your foods are, are imbalanced. And that may or may not be the case, but they do have to look at their industry of ultra-processed food where they are not balanced. And the big difference is that when one feeds raw food, there tends to be variety. And it's the variety of food, as nature intended, it's the variety that, that will protect you from excesses and deficiencies. Whereas when you go to, your, to the vet or you go to the supermarket, they'll say, you can have this food, it is balanced, you can feed it for life. Yeah, one food for life. There are no straight lines in nature, and yet the whole industry and we vets, we are feeding in a straight line for an entire life stage. Yeah, for the whole of your adult life, there is one, one diet. And it is recommended by nutritionists, by vets, by all these people, by the, by the manufacturers. They are recommending this. This is all you need. That's it. And um, so I say, yeah, forget forget the kibble. Feed a proper diet. Feed fresh food. Feed raw food. Off we go. This is the future. I love that you you focus very heavily on variety. I, I love that because with today's pet parent, one of the challenges, of course, is financial constraints. Because the majority of pet parents here today, what they do is sadly and unfortunately, when they go in, whether they're buying a raw food diet or whether they're purchasing an ultra processed food diet, the price is always king. And and as you know, you know, whether they go in to buy the raw food or they go in to buy the kibble, they see this is the cheapest. I can't afford to buy lamb or veal at this ridiculous price. So I will just feed my dog this one protein source because it's where I am in this bubble. And I think my dog should be okay. Yeah, I find that's really, really scary. And I th it, this comes into the idea that if you've got a big dog and you can only afford to feed it the very worst of food, yeah, $20 is not going to buy you great, great food. It's going to be ultra processed. It's going to be uniform food. So I think that's probably going to, you're probably going to be buying disease in that sooner or later your dog's going to get sick and you're going to have to shell out to treat your poor dog. So for those people, they want to take that plunge, but you know, they're working on it. They're working on it financially. Let's say they have to feed the ultra processed food. What recommendations do you have for them to, you know, to sort of improve that bowl? What, what would you recommend? 
feed a little bit of raw meat when you can. If you are a meat-eating household, take a little bit of the meat. Ideally, for dogs and cats, it should have been frozen because by freezing meat for 48 hours, you eliminate parasites and you eliminate Campylobacter. So it's always a good idea. So if the meat is going into the dog, it's better that it's been frozen. So I would say if just a little bit of real meat has a significant effect, just as the Purdue study said a little bit of greens changes your relationship with cancer, I think that feeding a little bit of meat, it, you know, because dogs were designed to eat meat. Would you recommend that people remove, like because of the obesity thing that's going on here, or people shouldn't have to worry about that? If you put a, a golf ball's worth of meat in, take a golf ball's worth of kibble out. The academics will be unhappy with that because the nutrient density of the kibble is, is high because it, it hasn't got the water in it. But if you're just doing it once a week or twice a week, one golf ball's worth, that it's not going to make any difference, but you are going to be adding nutrients. What I would suggest is that at the weekend, if you're having good meat and good green vegetables, share it with the dog. If you're feeding a kibble, you would feed probably twice the volume of kibble in fresh food and give yourself a treat. It's the weekend, so you may have a little more time. That is, that is one uh, option to do. What I would suggest is treat yourself. Get one of the quality prepared raw diets and just at the weekend treat the dog where you can feed some fresh food do. In the fresh feeding world there's there's a small group, it's not a very large group, but there's a small group of well-intentioned pet owners that call themselves Prey Model. I too, believe it or not, was Prey Model when I first started. And there's a theory out there that feeding your animals vegetables will tax the pancreas and ultimately kill the animal. So you will shorten your animal's lifespan with plant matter. What is your take on that? So if I come to you as a pet parent and I say, you know, you know, Dr. Nick, I want to feed my dogs fresh food, but I'm I'm terrified to feed them vegetables because I read that my animals could die. What What is your take on that? Will animals live a shorter lifespan with plant matter in their diet? I'm really glad you asked it. Okay, so first of all, there's two types of, of plants. There's the green vegetables above the ground, and there are the roots below the ground, essentially. Those are the two types of, of, of vegetables. The roots below the ground are for storage. They are starchy, they're potatoes, they're carrots, they're parsnips and things like this. I don't think they are the best. They're not going to kill you, but I don't think we should be feeding them long term. Feeding green vegetables from above the surface, so we're talking cabbage and we're talking kale and we're talking spring greens and, and spinach and these things, a variety of these things, I think is very healthy. You know, what's interesting, Dr. Nick, is when I was talking to the microbiologists over at Animal Biome, Dr. Holly Gantz, the PhD over there from, I think she came out of UC Davis, she was telling me that under a microscope, you know, those that add those low glycemic fibrous veggies that you're talking about, that they saw nothing but benefit in the gut biome of dogs. In fact, even dogs that were fed an ultra-processed diet versus those that were fed a raw-fed diet, they could just tell with one look what dog was eating what. The science is there, and I'll quote you on your, on your TED talk. You were talking about where they just removed a little bit of kibble and they added some green vegetables and dropped the risk, cancer risk, by 40% per do. 2005, yeah? 
How much more evidence do you need that some vegetable material is beneficial? There is a lot of ev evidence. Holly Gantz has got this data. But you only need to look at the nature of, of dogs. Dogs eat herbivore poo, sheep poo, horse poo, rabbit poo. They eat berries in season. Yeah, my little puppy, when she was five months old, went to the blackberry bush and started eating uh, berries straight off that. Cats do not do this. Yeah, cats eat fresh prey, period. Dogs will eat anything that's going because they're permanently hungry. They're like supermodels permanently hungry yeah so anything in the forest that's edible they will definitely check it out also when a canid eats prey if they have small prey anything smaller than about a rabbit the whole thing is going to go down the hatch if it's bigger they may open the uh, rumen of a goat or an antelope or a bison or whatever it might be our dogs eat every part of the of, of the herbivore. So from that perspective, and that would be my justification for free, feeding some green above the ground, not below the ground material. So what you know, one of the biggest questions, of course, that pet parents have, supplementation is huge. And a lot of people are in the sort of this supplement ecosystem of trying to find those incredible supplements that people can add into their pets' bowls or going to a supplement for a specific issue. What are some of your favorite supplements, Dr. Nick? The trick really is to give a variety of those. Don't just feed one of anything for the rest of time, okay? Because otherwise you're on the straight line rule, which is, which is not ideal. So some of my favorite herbs. I think a wonderful uh, herb that every, every pet parent should have in the cupboard is slippery elm. Now, make sure that you get slippery elm from a sustainable source because the stocks are dwindling and we have to make sure that we're not doing the environment harm. But slippery elm, and it's, it's kind of the bark of a tree. And it's very, very useful if the dog has got a little bit loose or a little bit constipated, any type of gut upset this is a very, very useful herb to use. Or if you're transitioning or the dog has had surgery or just if in doubt, slippery elm is a wonderful thing to use. We would use it at about half a teaspoon twice a day for a 10 kilo. 10 kilos would be about 20 pound dog. It's a powder. If you keep it dry, you can keep it in the cupboard for a very long time. It lasts very, very well. And it's so useful for if in doubt, Slippery elm. Is, do you have any like creative ways to add slippery elm? Because I, I find some people when they resort to the powder, they start sprinkling the powder, let's say on kibble, if they're if they're helping to relieve that digestive upset or what have you, and and then the dogs sort of walk away from that. Are there any ideas or how to get that into your pet? A really good hack for getting slippery elm or anything into a dog is one of my second little loves, which is broths. Bone broths are incredibly healing for the leaky gut. They're incredibly nutritious for, for the puppy who has diarrhea, for the bitch who's just had puppies, for uh, any dog where you're, where you're trying to encourage drinking. Bone broth is king. It really is a wonderful thing. What you can do is you can mix the slippery elm or the marshmallow or whatever it might be with the 
bone broth and there are very few dogs on this planet who will say no to a bone broth. What's your take, Dr. Nick, on, on milk thistle? I know milk thistle, you know, there's articles, you'll see articles around the world with a lot of veterinarians <clears throat> who will say that milk thistle is maybe one of the most important herbs that should be in your pet's bowl. Others will argue and say, you know, yeah, it's something that shouldn't be given forever. Maybe you would come in once in a while and you would add it. What's your take on milk thistle? Yeah, I love milk thistle. It's fantastic. You you give milk thistle before the insult. So if your dog is going for surgery and you know that they're going to they're, they're going to have the anesthetic, then you give the milk thistle before the event, okay? And for a good time afterwards. You can take it long term. If you're having to take it long term, there are probably other things which are better long term. Yeah, as your ch as you age, as your ch condition changes, you can you can graduate, you can evolve through herbs. But milk thistle itself, it's wonderful. Everybody knows that it's very good for the for the liver. We even have the your conventional vets have denamarin, which is the the extract is silymarin from it but i prefer to give the whole herb it was awesome what you said like yeah. give it before the insult that's about to occur for the animal how much are you giving to a dog or cat of milk thistle if, if somebody came in to see you about it well kind of depends depends on the on the preparation and that's not a get out it just you know it depends on how pure it is whether it's mixed with other herbs and things like this let me give you a little a reference book this is by susan Wynn, who i'm sure you've i'm sure you know wonderful and Barbara Fougere, and it's Veterinary Herbal Medicine. That's a really, really useful book to, to, for finding, for references to see, you know, this is a new herb. Is it toxic? What's it do? How can I use it? And also it will give you the dose rates for any given herb. It's very, very useful and very, very readable, yeah? If anybody's interested in herbal medicine, that is a wonderful, it's more than a more than an introduction. It's a great place to start. The beauty of milk thistle, the beauty of slippery elm and with chamomile and these kind of herbs is that they're very, very safe. I am blown away that on your side of the pond, you have an organization of incredible members of veterinarians who are promoting the feeding of fresh food where something here in Canada and in the United States, this is just sort of like mind blowing. I know that you guys always lead the way down there. You guys always lead the trend, but you got to tell me about this organization. It is fantastic. And I'm really glad that you raised it. One of the manufacturers, the lead guy in the manufacturers and I, we would always sit there for years and years saying, we got to get the vets together, got to get the vets together. And one day in 2000, at the end of 2014, I just thought, that's it, that's enough. So I contacted 20 of my, my top vet and vet nurse friends and said, listen, let's just sit down and have lunch together and see what happens, okay? Something's going to happen to start the ball rolling. And we all said, this is a great thing to do. What are we going to do? And then in the, in the January, I thought, we need a conference. We need to focus everybody. So I hired the hall where my kids were going to nursery. And I thought, if we get 25 people, 25 people, raw food, all speaking the same language. Yeah, all speaking raw food. I'll be really, really happy. You know what? We had 80 people turn up from France, from Spain, from Holland, from Ireland, from all over the UK. And the place was full. And that is how it began. We're now at nearly 200 members. We have 
veterinary surgeons, any veterinary surgeons watching, please come and join us. We've got vet nurses, we've got vet techs, and everybody watching is welcome because every day is a school day with RAW. The RAW Feeding Veterinary Society is a massive phenomenon and it's just getting bigger and bigger and we're just sharing information because you always know you're going to have a great conversation when you're speaking to a raw or fresh feeding individual somebody who looks beyond the kibble of this world you know we're very thankful for veterinarians like yourself dr nick who are leading the way today and giving pet parents more options, looking into health, looking into the gut biome, looking into science. You're doing a lot of regular things on your channels. I know you've got your Facebook Lives and your programming. Where can the pet parents around the world come to see more of the things that you're saying? Every Wednesday, I do a Facebook Live for half an hour, 8 p.m., Greenwich Mean Time, that's UK time, 8pm, and and you're all welcome. Please do come along. I'm getting very excited about Instagram. You can find me at Holistic Vet UK. I've got two Facebook pages, Holistic Vet Limited, and also I've got Dr. Nick Thompson. Can I just do one last plug, please? Anna Heim Bjorkman at the University of Helsinki runs a department, runs a group called Dog Risk, and they need money for research. They have 40 papers just parked to one side, and all they need is money, and they can action those papers to flood the world with papers showing science on raw feeding studies. So I'd just like to big up uh, Anna Heimbjörkman because she's one of the leading researchers in the world and she's a wonderful, wonderful human being. I love that woman. Facebook world, thank you so much for tuning in. Dr. Nick Thompson, thank you so much for helping me rock out some education to the pet parents of the world. And we'll see you guys again.